0: Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we explore some farmer and seasonal food connections with chef Dave Smoke McCluskey, founder of Corn Mafia and grower-producer of Longhouse Hominy, masa, & Grits. Based in South Carolina, Dave is an indigenous foods educator and member of the Mohawk Nation who invites us all to think about the history of the ingredients in our food, including those originating from the Native American lands we in the U.S. live on. Dave's quest for flavorful, real food stems from a very basic curiosity about his people's past, specifically what has been lost. I spoke with Dave as the Pleiades rose in the night sky early in the year, and I am happy to share his journey story with you in this season of saving and preserving and savoring our growing season's riches in this time of harvest and holidays.
1: Hi, Jennifer. How are you?
0: I am well, and I'm really pleased to be speaking with you today, and I would love to have you share with us. What a mission statement by, might be for the growing or gardening or cultivating of place that you do in your life, Dave?
1: It's Kind of a, a, an abstract question for me, if you will. Um, I'm a chef by trade. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really a horticulturist or a gardener per se, though, though here during pandemic has been my first garden. Um, as I, as I tell people at events or I tell some of the elders as they're trying to hand me seeds, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a shower than a grower, if you will. I'm somebody that cooks things. I look at food in a completely different way than others do. Uh, though I still have a great appreciation of, of the, the, the plants and where they've been and how they've been grown. Um, if they've been uh, nurtured or prayed to or just left to sit and grow, uh, if they've been sprayed, if they've not been sprayed. My interests are is that um, we're growing foods that are local to our regions, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, be- because I feel that a lot of those foods that have been there for, in some cases, well over a thousand years, uh, grow better in their own surroundings and their own natural surroundings that they've been managed for uh, you know over a thousand years uh from indigenous farmers uh have have nurtured these seeds and selected these seeds to grow better in our own regions so um a lot of the time i i think and i hear and i talk because i've talked to quite a bit of farmers as 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 well and read quite a bit about the subject is that these these plants are they're adapted to the region so uh they don't need as many insecticides or, or other sprays and things like that to kind of get them through the season. So I just kind of believe that if we can naturally select seeds to to grow where they're supposed to and not be bothered by the things that are there, uh, we should be planting those things as opposed to things from other regions that generally don't have uh, any ties to the area.
0: I want to clarify uh, that even though you don't consider yourself a grower per se, you as a chef and you as an indigenous voice in this world, you are cultivating what other people grow based on what you want to work with and see. and that yes. that tangential relationship uh, that is formative, I think is really important in in our in our line of conversation today. And I really admire that, and I think it's an important line for us all to be aware of, how what we do with our work affects what is grown in this world. So before we get deeper in that, though, Dave, mm-hmm. let's go back a little bit so that listeners have a sense of who you are and where you came from and where were you born and raised and who were the people and plants and places that grew you into the person who would be a chef concerned with locally adapted heirloom, historic uh, or just delicious plant foods.
1: All right, um, I was born in Syracuse, New York. I'm, I'm uh, of, of mixed ancestry, Mohawk and Irish ancestry. I was raised on Cape Cod, uh, kind of a kind of a strange, strange combination there, but uh, spent a lot of my youth in upstate New York and the Mohawk Valley and surrounding area. Uh, And all of my vacation time from school and whatnot and after, so that's a lot of historical homelands as to where the Mohawks' territories were at one point, pre-revolution and uh, subsequent ethnic cleansing and genocide of of the Mohawk or the Iroquois peoples. A lot of ties to the land in that region, if you will. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know that that I think is something that is that has moved me. Ties to land, ties to farming. I was I was lucky enough to have to. To have some elder folks around that, that that kind of raised me to believe in uh, knowing about what our our history was, if you will, and and, and corn uh, in particular is one of those things. But not only just corn and beans and squash, which are the uh, you know collectively called the three sisters, but things like rubber and chewing gum was was first here, and just all of the things that are from the Americas. Uh, pecans and, and and peppers and, and cocoa would, uh, uh, you know, for to make chocolate would would be another fine example of, of things that have kind of taken off around the world from here. Um, I had elders that kind of encouraged us to learn these things as a sense of pride. So I guess tying myself to these almost subconsciously in a way as as I was younger. Uh, really just promoted my interest in these things in, in my adulthood and, and in my pr- profession as a chef. So mm-hmm. um, it just makes sense to uh, use these things and defend these things or promote these things um, and promote the the sense of pride that even still to this day, over over 60% of the world's crops harvested or cultivated are are from the Americas or native to the Americas. Yeah. And uh, uh, in the absence of let's say European Americans identifying us as uh, ethnicities and insisting on identifying us by race, I lay claim to all of that stuff. So, uh, you know, I'll I'll have people point out that well, lima beans aren't actually from where your people are from, you know, lima beans come from, from, from Lima, Peru, and were adopted in the 1700s, uh, through, through trade. So I like to say that, that, that no food exists in a vacuum indigenous people, uh, Accepted a lot of change uh, willingly, so trade with seeds and trade with food and trade with other goods is is was pretty common even in the 1700s, is just as much so as they are now. So uh, people kind sometimes seem like they they would like to trap us in kind of uh, their own view of us. So so a lot of the food with me, uh, you know, my 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 family has owned a few uh, health food stores when I was younger. So I was kind of exposed to, to, to some of those things, organics, and understanding organics and tasting those foods and stuff and kind of being open to, uh, promoting that because it makes sense. So, uh, you know, kind of back to the farming and the, and the, and the cooking. Um, I kind of view myself as a conduit between say the, the farming and agricultural community and the people and chefs that, that, that wind up, uh, making markets for these things that are grown. So, um, that's a pretty well-established fact. I'm not the only one that claims things like like that, but most food is very chef-driven, and uh, I just feel that with a little bit of knowledge and sharing that knowledge, we can make some make some important changes, at least for uh, in, in, indigenous farmers. Hopefully, to be able to sell to sell crops and sell our own crops in volume and make a little bit of money. So, um, thus, corn mafia lying Mohawk masa um as as vehicles to at the moment push push hominy corn out. Um, and hominy corn is a whole nother conversation in itself uh, for for healthy, healthy eating lessons, but also um, I use it as a as a way to protect the seeds from those that would take the seeds and plant them again. And maybe make crosses and do other things. So, um, I'm, what I'm trying to do and I'm trying to cultivate is is the use of indigenous corns that we can kind of keep the keep the stewardship going there. So um, when I when I make hominy, it, it removes any vi- viability of, of, of growth from the corn. So we we can sell the corn whole or we can sell it ground. Uh, that really protects the sovereignty of the seed, if you will.
0: These are passionate threads for you. So. I, I want to keep us back in in your youth for just a second. You, you had some elders who kind of cultivated this appreciation and pride and historic knowledge in you, and you got a sort of, by symbiosis as well as experience, knowledge of organics and quality of taste and give us the specifics of how you moved from being a, a boy on cape cod to being a chef
1: to be real honest i started when i came back from from spending the summer with my with my grandmother in in, in mohawk country if you will and and a. Uh, uh, friend that was a little bit older than me was working in a restaurant and they needed help. I came back and I was 12, all of 12 years old, though I looked 14 and you know, kind of got asked if I wanted to work a little bit. And when your parents are going to buy a Chuck Taylor's and you could have a pair of Nikes if you work, well, you know, <laughs> um, you're going to get to work pretty quickly if, yeah. if you want those Nikes. So I went to work and, and, uh, kind of found a different world. If you've ever read Tony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, there's a part in there all about Cape Cod and his, his first experiences in the business. Those were the kitchens that I grew up in. So uh, he, he described some of the chefs and cook as cooks as almost like pirates. In a way, uh, very rough and tumble. My wife calls it my my Lord of the Flies upbringing. <laughs> so uh, you know, you're 12 years old working with 20 and 30 year olds and teenagers that are older than you. It, I tell my cooks now, and I and I tell kids that I that, that you know, when I teach, I tell kids that that kitchens are the great equalizer. Hmm. In that, if you apply yourself, you can move forward. So so it, it doesn't matter your 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 race or your ethnicity or your sexuality at all. It, what matters the most is that you can do your job at the, at the best of your abilities and hopefully uh, the best of your crew that you're a member of. So, yeah, I, I stayed working in the business. I worked in the grocery business for a little bit. I worked to my mom's store occasionally. My mom had run a an organics or a natural foods co-op before eventually opening a store. So pretty well versed in the theories and thoughts thereof. Of of that natural foods movement, if you will. Fast forward through high school and grocery work and then uh, in the college where it's back to a little bit of restaurant work. Uh, I, I was not a culinary student, but by any means I was a criminal justice major. So in hmm. the point of realizing that I, that wasn't something that I wanted to do, even, you know, I was minoring in juvenile justice at the time. Uh, one of my family members said to me, you know, what you know, what's something that you're uh, going to hate the least? <laughs> um, is to think of as a job or a... Or a, a new educational path and uh, you know I came up with food it was it was the 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 fun thing about restaurants and food is it's always changing yeah every day is different every sometimes every 15 minutes is different but fast forward into my early 20s I'm working at at fine dining restaurants and whatnot so there's always seasonal change there mushrooms would be a big example of that Mm. for me anyway in the fact that I got to know the seasons by what mushrooms were available Mm. Yeah. So so you're starting to kind of uh, get your body in tune or your mind in tune as to what's going to be coming up with things. So as you get in, in tune with some of the mushrooms that I kind of really loved, uh, you start noticing the other things that are popping, like say in the spring, you've got ramps and fiddleheads and, and morel mushrooms popping up all of, all about the same time. Uh, soon after you have wild strawberries going. So uh, you have spring peas. So you 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 start to exist kind of in this, in this realm of seasonality that uh, translates to farming, that translates to foraging. I love to forage. So, uh, you know, there's another example of, of just food ties that are kind of cultural, but it's a nice day to get out in the woods. So, in turn, we can watch things grow and keep our eye on things to come back to harvest them that are wild, uh, but in a way are, are, are almost cultivated uh, by us, if you will, uh, or maybe they're just acknowledged.
0: This is Cultivating Place. Chef Dave Smoke McCluskey is a founder of Corn Mafia and a grower-producer of longhouse hominy, masa, and grits. Based in South Carolina, Dave is an Indigenous foods educator and member of the Mohawk Nation. He invites us all to think about the history of the ingredients and flavors in our food. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to turn 100 years old and still growing strong, the AHS is committed to integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy and reminds us all of the vibrancy and relevance of gardening in our world. Their in-depth journal, The American Gardener, their reciprocal admissions at public gardens, and their many other programs bring gardening to life. The Society's annual garden online auction takes place from October 28th to November 10th. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a ten dollar discount on annual individual membership. So, for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just twenty five dollars a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. Hey, it's Jennifer. I am sure you've all heard me say this before, but I am not much of a cook. In this season, though, the harvest, the autumn, the return of cool nights, and the hope of stormy weather has even me thinking about cooking food. I think as gardeners, we, by which I really mean I, we often forget that our gardening, our growing efforts in the world, go far beyond our garden gates. This conversation with Chef Dave has me thinking about food how not only what we grow in our gardens but what we request and buy from seeds to groceries to what we order in restaurants has real implications and meaning in how the world at large grows and is grown as we enter the front edge of fall and winter foods and festivals this is a good time to remember that in many ways Every decision we make is a kind of gardening, an extension of our gardens. How would we like them to grow? We're back now to our conversation with Chef Dave Smoke McCluskey, founder of Corn Mafia. Based in South Carolina, Dave is an indigenous food educator and member of the Mohawk Nation, who researches and recreates and reenvisions the flavorful past of indigenous foodways. Dave, who sees intimate connections to foraging and farming, says that foraging is a little like fishing. Sometimes you come back without fish, but you've always had a good day in the woods. Dave was an early member of Chef's Collaborative in Boston in the 1990s, advocating strongly for the link between good farming and good food in restaurants. As the high-end restaurants wanted to buy the specialty organic or naturally grown crops, this gave farmers confidence to move in that direction, creating a whole new circular economy and therefore hope for a new food system the fuller flavor from well-grown, locally sourced produce was key. As we come back, Dave shares more about the nature of flavor from several perspectives, primarily that of a chef and grower, but also as a thoughtful historian.
1: One of my, one of my thoughts about always buying local is that the, the food is always at its freshest point. So uh, something shipped from California, maybe five or six days from picking, and then you've got another six or eight or 10 days on it before it really starts to rot. Um, it, some some things develop a bitterness to them that, that, that aren't very pleasing. Um, but when you taste something that's right out of the garden or or a few days out of the garden, it's still kind of sweet and fresh. and, and but the flavors are really there for some things. Um, I, I think it's a big misnomer that all organic things taste better than, say, con- conventional things, because sometimes zucchini just tastes like zucchini. Um, and you know, <laughs> Uh, and the difference in that is that you know that it's clean, though. And that's a hard one to translate to your customer when they expect things to taste so much better. And it's like, no, it's still a piece of zucchini that's pretty bland that I, you know, I have to make it taste taste better. But um, same thing with chickens. Sometimes or, or organic chickens, if, if they're just raised somewhat conventionally, but fed organic feed, they taste just like a conventional chicken. Um, it's, it's when they're out running around and eating a lot of other things that they start to taste different, but then they start to cost more of that. Um, and people get a little bit weirded out about eating, eating pastured chicken because they taste a lot different. Yeah. Um, and they taste better, but what I try to explain to them is that, uh, you know, it's, it's not just the flavor there. It, it often is just the knowing that it's what it's eaten or knowing where it's been. Right. Uh, last time I ran a restaurant, I, I had pictures of the chickens that I bought that were local. And I could point to the pictures on the wall when somebody would would question me why the chicken was expensive. I would point to that on the wall. I could pull up the chickens that had just come in this week. I could pick, point out a picture of the ones that were harvested last week and show them.
0: Right, right.
1: So, uh, you know, and, and then offer to take them to the farm that was a few miles down the road that raised all the local chickens and ducks that we used at. there at the restaurant. We used their eggs and, and um, you know, we used it and everything from them that, that we could there at the restaurant. So, um, there's a symbiosis here that I that I try to talk about in, in some of what I do. Um, more recently, over the past five or six years, building, building thoughts about corn mafia is that what I try to do is make that link between the farmer and the public and the chef. Um, so if I can kind of, um, chefs being very type A personalities, um, if I can make a link between smaller farmers or indigenous farmers to chefs without the chef really entering into the equation with the farmer, um, sometimes the two do not get along. Um, chefs want their food now today uh, and farmers will give you that food when it's just right to pick and that might be tomorrow or it might be next week, uh, but chefs don't want to hear about that. So uh, there tends to be some, some friction there at times. Um, what I'm trying to do is cut some of that off. But again, I'm trying to provide a, a, a almost a fair trade atmosphere for corn right. or farmers to consumers.
0: And I'm getting these... Strong themes through your life of both good food locally and sustainably, maybe for lack of a better word, sourced, yes. whether or not that's organic or, or well done, ethically conventional. Yes. And the importance of making a, a quality living. Um, the economics of it is also a recurring theme, so i want to I want to have you bring listeners forward to to where we are now, where you live now and and mm-hmm. what you do right now, as well as a description of what what is corn mafia and what is mohawk masa as as endeavors. And then we'll get more into the details of of that, and as they relate to food sovereignty, Dave.
1: Presently, I live in South Carolina. I'm uh, just outside Augusta, Georgia, and um, I've been traveling the the southeast here, attending and participating in Cajun style boucherie, uh, which which is kind of a harvest festival in its own right, if you will, uh, revolving around the proper nose to tail harvesting and, and, and processing of, of farm animals, humanely. We do these events at places that are generally farms that raise their animals pastured, usually as close to organic as, as possible. Uh, organic certifications are expensive, so a lot of farmers don't wanna spend the money on that. So, which to me isn't always a big deal. If I know where things are and I know what they're using on things, I can kind of go, yeah, okay, I can see that. It's not that big of a deal. I don't always think that if that, that it's that much of a deal if we can eat most of what we eat organically or healthily, you know, kind of in a clean fashion. That's just a modern reality. I don't think we're going to go back to having things all completely organic, though we should be focusing on not using as many chemicals. What I do with the boucherie is I usually head an indigenous team or team of chefs and cooks and we, we process corn and we show part of that process and how it's used with the, the uh, animals that, that we're harvesting. So um, we may feature uh, uh, Palet or my, my, my partner in crime. He's, he's of Mexican descent, so we'll do we'll make masa. Um, and we will make uh, we'll make tortillas, we'll make tamales, we'll make all kinds of different things. And we're what we're trying to do is teach chefs, cooks, farmers, producers of things we were trying to teach them these techniques with with uh most of the time with me with an heirloom or a native american type of corn so um, all corn being of the americas but um, these indigenous grown corns are important to me because it keeps seeds alive that are kind of dying out or don't have many people growing them so doing this for a few years has has made me see that there's a there's an opportunity there to to sell some of these items because as chefs see different things. They want them for their restaurants, and they want them because nobody else has them. So uh, this has kind of led to corn mafia, and uh, most recently of as as uh, lying mohawk masa. Uh, lying uh, is kind of a little bit of a wordplay, so that's lie with an E, not as a liar, but uh, lying is also the technique that, that we refer to in most places nowadays as nixtamalization, uh, which is the processing of corn with in my case, hardwood ash, into hominy. Um, and that whole process in itself, it's, it's, a, it's a chemical reaction, if you will, between the hardwood ash and the water, creates a, a weak lye solution, and it, it helps to remove the outer skin of the pericarp from the corn. But part of that process is also that uh, uh, you know, as it removes and, and dissolves that indigestible part of the corn, part of that process is that it converts all of the vitamins and minerals and and niacin that were previously unavailable for us, uh, to digest. Uh, they're all there yeah. after the process. So the corn turns out to be a much, uh, healthier product for us to eat. So I, I, I kind of preach the gospel of the, the three sisters and that is a, a diet rich in corn, beans, and squash, because those three things together, they, they, they form a relationship with, with, uh, nourishing us that is that is incomparable to any other uh, poly or mono, monoculture per acre.
0: They also provide a, a really um, sort of perfect uh, relationship for soil health as well.
1: Yes, they do. Um, corn and beans have kind of a symbiotic relationship because of the nitrogen involved that the beans produce that the corn loves to eat. So the, the, the corn also provides a, a tall thing for the beans to kind of grow up squash and it's in its own right then uh planted just a few weeks later uh provides ground cover or mulch kind of a living mulch if you will around these plants so there's less need of weeding pretty ingenious system uh the uh, three sisters garden Uh, some people will argue that that there's more sisters than that the three sisters derives from the, the the milpa system which is which is you know indigenous to Mexico, which which I think there's 24 or 25 things that are growing around each other at, at, at different points in the field. Um, we too use that, but I think uh, uh, Mohawks and the Iroquois are are uh, very, very oriented to telling lesson stories. So we tell stories at this time of the year. Today is the start of, of our our uh midwinter ceremonies and and as as we used to sit in the lodges we would tell our stories that that uh detailed our 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 religion and all kinds of other things so in the winter time you have less less things to do outside obviously as there's a lot of snow so a lot of lesson stories would be told and and some people would just view those as stories but Um, we always told them the stories always had a lesson. So um, it's my belief that that, that the continuation of the belief of the three sisters in the three sistered garden is a way to tell you uh, that those three things will nourish you if they're grown together. And so there's a lot of different stories told about the three sisters to kind of keep them relevant. Though A lot of other cultures, if you will, uh, that have lost cultures have kind of adopted that. So it, it gets a little... Too romanticized, I guess, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but
1: but I but I tend to view it as a as just another lesson story that 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 kind of reinforces that we should grow those things together because they will nourish us. Um, I go a step further and in, in in my belief that they are merely vehicles uh, for us. They are vehicles for our forage. So um, if you've ever eaten say corn for five or six days straight or beans for five or six days straight. You're ready to kill somebody on the fifth day if it's if it's prepared the same way for those five days. So <laughs> it's 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 not my belief that corn bean and squash is just a diet and it's and it's it, in addition, its own right. It's it's they are vehicles for things. So as I've learned historically, stuff about uh, my own culture, uh, we typically ate we ate breakfast or you know, I kind of call it brunch, if you will. So there'd be morning chores done and then there'd be a meal. Uh, that we did one one meal together once a day. And as you were hungry the rest of the day, you could come come over to the cook fires and help yourself as to what's going on there. Well, obviously, things as, as people are coming out and eating things, the pots are getting depleted. Well, the other thing that, that folks do that we don't always write about, but if you're smart like me and you read and kind of pick all these little weird things up about food and, and, and gardens and growing, um, just little mentions a lot of the time. What you see is that as people were, say, coming down a trail for maybe weeding, they saw uh, uh, a bunch of watercress there in the spring or, or, you know, in the stream and they picked the watercress and that all went in the soup you know, when they got back to the village. So things change pretty quickly. You've got a plain corn, corn soup that has some meat and corn and, and you know, maybe some beans in there. Well, you just added a bunch of greens to it. That completely changes the dynamic of that dish. So realistically you have a new dish there that's, that's there for the rest of the day. So um, I treat these three things as vehicles for, all of the other things that we ate, so we weren't just farmers; we were also gatherers. Mm. So there was a kind of a symbiotic relationship there with, with the earth, with our mother. Uh, there that that I I don't think a lot of people write about or or realize. Um, so you know, as a chef, um, as a professionally trained chef, I notice a lot of things about eating and people's habits.
0: This is cultivating place. Chef Dave Smoke McCluskey is the founder of Corn Mafia and grower producer of Longhouse Hominy, Massa, and Grits. Based in South Carolina, Dave is an indigenous foods educator and member of the Mohawk Nation. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. So, thinking out loud this week, we're now into the final quarter of 2021. The October full moon rose just last night. We have here, where I live, our first seasonal rains in the forecast. I'm thinking about Chef Dave's full focus on the flavors of the foods of his ancestors, his rejection of a narrative of blandness, his imaginative and observant re-envisioning of flavor and bringing that into the present with what he grows, with what he eats, with what he serves and teaches and offers out to others. I like this flavorful approach to a gardening life. I feel like we could all add more flavor to our gardening mindsets as we lean into the remainder of this year and intentionally cultivate what comes next. May it be full of vibrancy of flavor, and of gathering together to share both. We're back now to our conversation with Chef Dave Smoke McCluskey, founder of Corn Mafia and grower-producer of Longhouse Hominy, Masa & Grits. Based in South Carolina, Dave is an Indigenous foods educator and member of the Mohawk Nation. His quest for flavorful, real food of Indigenous origins stems from his very basic, lifelong curiosity about his people's vibrant past and present. It's an exploration and search not only for what has been lost, but what was lost to the imagination.
1: I think a lot about the way food was because we've lost a lot of that. With with, with losing forage, We've lost a lot of things just about our food, so our food can be sometimes viewed as bland, or or it's just just nothing very adventurous, and, and and even our own people are stuck in that belief that hey, our food's kind of bland. And I, you know, I think that that cultures that were vibrant that had artwork that made their own tools that made their own lodges that had. Uh, in, in in my case, political thought that 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 say our our Constitution and Bill of Rights were more formative on than anything that you had in Europe. Were more formative on the U.S. stuff now with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. But so if you can have that that thought pattern, you're not going to eat bland food. My thoughts have been reading for years is that you you generally read other people's dissertation work. On culture and food, so you can pick some things up here and there, and, and nine times out of 10, those those folks are European-Americans. There's a cultural racism there that, that kind of goes on, whether it's believed or not believed. Some, some of that stuff is learned, but you have to filter through things. Last year, I did some, some, some things on fermented corn that uh, my people up north have kind of lost contact with that whole process. But what I read about it was written by Jesuits in the 1700s. Um, and we didn't have a very good relationship with the Jesuits, so um, it, it, it wasn't a very positive thought process. Of, of, you know, it was referred to as putrid corn, um, and you know, they said that we just threw it in a puddle and let it fester for a few months. Which, you know, if you know anything about our relationship with with corn and 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 uh, its relationship to our creation story, it's highly unlikely that we're going to throw some some corn that we revere uh, into a puddle to to just. Ferment, if you will, or festered and turn putrid. So um you know, so that turned into a whole lot of work about fermenting corn myself and and talking with people in the ferments community and and, and trying a lot of different things and and um just a lot of fun trying to trying to explore things that are culturally uh lost.
0: I read about your presentation on the fermented corn, and and it's a very vibrant tradition in the southeast, which I find uh interesting in in that story you just related about it maybe being, um, diminished through the filter of Jesuit, uh, perspective in the Northeast. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, you know, here in the South, here in the South, it's a, it's a tradition with, with the, with the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and the Cherokee, uh, it's referred to as soft though it's not fermented as much anymore. So, um, as, as, uh, I guess you could say European American culture has kind of filtered into things. Some of this stuff is our, our palates have changed. Our, our thoughts on things have changed a little bit. So um, some of those cultures still drink soft key and they'll leave it to ferment lightly overnight on the stove. The you know, the elder folks will usually, but m- most of the time, when you find it now, it's 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 not really fermented. It's left in the refrigerator overnight. It's it's just a cold corn corn drink at that point, which is still very tasty. Um, so it's neat that that's still alive as as, as part of their culture. Um i've I've been the chef in residence for the chi- for the Chickasaw nation for for several summers and and that's kind of where some of that knowledge came from is that is that the folks here in the southeast still retained that that thought process with their corn. So it was pretty exciting for me to see that because I've read about the putrid corn for a long time and kind of you know it just didn't it didn't click. often just just with the way written history goes about, People with oral histories—it depends on who's writing things down. As a chef, and you're being told that your foodways are always very bland and whatnot. Well, you go, well, if you if you put us on a on a reservation and don't allow us to leave it, and then you shrink that, there's very little forage in that area, or, or you know, very very little forage in that area, depending on how we know it as. So we lose a lot of our knowledge on the things that don't happen to be on that that one plot of land that that you've allowed us to live on, and that that could be as simple as deer, or it could be bear, or it could be buffalo, it could be elk. Um, so, so you lose these things in your foods and you've replaced them with things. And, and as a chef cooking new American food in the in late 80s and early 90s, we looked a lot of the time, we looked at what uh, colonial folks were were eating and growing. And, and uh, what I realized at the time, a lot of that was very reflective of the indigenous foods that were around, though a few, few people were were given credit for that. So Yeah. You start to see a vibrancy in food, a vibrancy in in beans. I belong to one or two secret bean groups online that uh, are people sharing pictures of just all kinds of beans and heirloom stuff that that, uh, I'm sure Baker Creek or any of those other places would love to get their hands on. It's interesting to see uh, those beans, the different corn, the different squashes, um, there's, there's all kinds of varieties of things that are not that far off from, from the original or from what everyone else is used to, though they might be flecked with purple or red. Or
0: So this kind of gets us, you know, some of early in your responses, you mentioned the idea of how you produce hominy and grits, which are ground hominy corn help protect their sovereignty?
1: Um, I sometimes say that that, that the creator chose the people to protect our seeds and he chose them well because they're very protective of our seeds. So we've got a lot to be thankful for, for those generations of folks, Um, but they're not always the ones uh, that you should look to for the next step. Uh, which is growing them in volume, because ultimately, corn, beans, squash are, are as we say, all given a duty to sustain us by the, by the creator. For them to be grown on a half acre plot on your farm every other year is nice, but that's kind of like uh, being in an ICU, ICU unit to me. Um, and the fact that, uh, yeah, you're, you're keeping the seed alive, but they're on life support, really. They're not really feeding the, the people some folks would argue that that they are feeding the people because there's you know say a few hundred of us left on a on a reserve or or, or in a community well yeah that's true in in a way but we traded our corns as well so i think that the people should be able to experience some of these corns because they taste so much different than 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 what Mm -hmm. they're used to and a lot of that's like wine uh it's all about where they were grown um in the in the soil people only think that that terroir if you will is all about wine but it's all about everything really Uh, where it's grown how it tastes so it's a that that to me is a whole different thought process than than say conventional farmers or or european american farmers feel about a lot of things Is that it's 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 just corn it'll grow Uh, yeah yes and no but you know there's there's some corns that'll grow here that that do really well in the soil there's others that that don't and it's not really Going to be fixed with with fertilizers or watering or not watering. It's just that they've been selected over you know centuries to grow here. And it's important now with climate change um, that these same seeds that have grown here say for a thousand years as as our climate's changing over the over that time and our climate looks to be changing even more so now. It's important to grow these same seeds out in volume. I believe to select the ones that are doing well for here.
0: Okay, well, so make the connection for us. How does this relate to corn mafia, to your Longhouse Hominy, Masa, Grits, and your other food work?
1: It's, it's not just a, hey, they get the seed select, or, or hey, I get to sell some corn. Um, to me, it provides a marketplace for that corn eventually. So the people that are growing those seeds out have a marketplace. They can trust the sovereignty of the seed because I turn it into hominy and then I sell it. Chefs can be assured that they're having things or have the opportunity sometimes to buy a whole lot of, of a specific corn and serve it at their restaurants, um, or in their small grocery, grocery chains, if you will. So, um, I've got some, some contracts for wholesale stuff kind of sitting in my inbox that I've kind of been, uh, uh, Waiting on be, be, be because I'm I'm still working on my my whole process of how how I'm going to be doing things. So uh, it's, I'm I'm in my COVID in infancy here with the business that uh, just really kind of dropped in my lap. So um, I've been doing a lot of this stuff in in writing a book about the the three sisters and a cookbook and whatnot. And, and uh, as as my own mind has evolved about that cookbook um, and the processes thereof. Um, I realized that there isn't many sources any longer for, for true hominy corn. And uh, what I would, what I've been preaching over the past few years um, about the three sisters diet uh, really requires that, that hominy corn, if you will, because it it, it really makes that diet what it is. Um, so yeah. that's turned to me kind of and- here in, in, in pandemic. Uh, I gave up a teaching job to stay here at home and not be In crazy high school pandemic uh, teaching classes, and and, and, my son decided to stay home from from, from middle school. It's just kind of I've I've had some folks that are kind of in the background for a few years now pushing me to do something like this. And I kind of just said, well, I'm I'm at home all the time now. Why don't I try it? I've I've had stockpiles of corn here under the guest bed for years that that I would use, (laughs) that I would use in food events. Um, and well, uh, you know, as, as last, last year, as all the food events quickly disappeared, I'm going, well, I got a, you know, I got a couple hundred pounds of corn here that I got to do something with. Um, and I just, you know, that's kind of how, how things kind of rolled out. And, you know, with my realization that I, that I, I need a source, uh, I need to find a source that does hominy uh, for people to buy things, if they're going to buy the book and follow the diet, if you will, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Where should people find you? At the moment,
1: I'm I'm just about to set up a website. Um, right right now, I'm I'm uh, pretty much I'm all word of mouth. So so we're we're, we're small batch, um, we're we're word of mouth. You can contact me at Corn Mafia on Instagram, um, or uh, at Cod Chef on Instagram, or Dave Smok McCluskey on Facebook, um, and and uh, I will send out a newsletter that that tells everybody how to. How to purchase our products because we're a small batch business i sometimes i have things some sometimes i don't so uh, right now i just picked up a whole bag of red red pasole corn so i'll have big fat red red posle corn as as hominy for for sale again uh, probably in the next week or so so um we're just rolling out a as i'm finding here in the southeast it's the perfect place to be selling grits because it's the one place in the country where people eat Still eat quite quite a bit of grits, um, but what I'm finding out is is they prefer the yellow grits, or or some of them do. So uh, I'm just rolling out a line of of yellow hominy grits for all y'all, as we say. So um, just a bit of fun. I've got another one in the works. We're waiting on labeling. That's that's uh, uh, tentatively referred to as Warriors of the Rainbow. If anyone's f- familiar with that kind of myth or story, uh, just a fun. Fun thing for me because I had a bunch of different colors of corn around that I nixtamalized and turned into hominy grits, and they're all ready to go. I'm just waiting for labeling for that, though that may morph into some and in, in, into another wording. But um, we have some, some fun here. I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen the corn mafia logo, but that's a grenade that's actually a corn. So, um, uh, you yeah, a little bit of re- revolutionary stuff there. Um, but people seem to love that 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 grenade. So um the corn grenade. So uh, it's a hard image for us to 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 lose in in not wanting to have kind of a whole mouthful of corn under one one banner. Um it came up with lying mohawk as a as a term, and that's got a crow with a with a with a red star and, and, and kind of a Bosquiot-esque Bas- crown on him. Um that's lying Mohawk Masa. So uh, that's, that's masa or corn flour for tortillas, tamales, all kinds of things. Um, cornbread, a lady's going to be making uh, Iroquois and cornbread tonight on a, on a cooking demo uh, with, with our stuff. And it's, 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 it's all kind of cool and in taking off. Yeah. So. I
0: want to get on, I, I want to get on the mailing list because I love grits. I love grits a lot.
1: Well, what I've done with these is, is here, we're back to talking about a little bit of that, that thought process of, of history. Um, what I do with these is I've, I've thought about things that are bland and, and corn is one of those things. And, uh, historically we, my people lived in longhouses, uh, which are big, long affairs that could be 200 feet long or more. And multiple families lived in these houses, uh, you know, clan houses, basically. So, uh, a lot of our corn was stored in the rafters, where we had corn hanging from the rafters. We had beans, all you know, all kinds of food stuff hanging up there. And, and um, as I'm here in the southeast, and I've been around a lot of a lot of farmers and hog producers and stuff, uh, I eat a lot of uh, you know, cured ham, if you will. You know, or I get to taste a lot of it, I should say, um, and my thought process is that as, as, you're standing in somebody's smokehouse, it's, it's, it's just deeply smoky. Well, if you've ever stood in a longhouse, which I have, it's deeply smoky. And people have written about that for hundreds of years, how, how, how smoky it was in our longhouses. So that, that, you know, we may have had a few small chimneys or fire holes in the, in the, in the roof. And that was about it. So a uh, very smoky environment. So I said, well, that, that, you know, the chef and me went, well, that would transfer to everything that's in the in there, you're basically living in a smokehouse, and uh, yeah. so last year I smoked some corn, uh, you know, fire roasted some uh, corn and got it to get that flavor like it had been sitting in a smokehouse for a while, and uh, we came up with what we refer to as longhouse hominy, Yum. Uh, which is just my my thoughts on possibly how our corn tasted at one time. Um, so it's it's as it's as it's you know kind of fire roasted. it's it's, it's slightly smoky. It's a little bit toasted. Um, so it's a very different grit than anyone has given you or shown you. So um, it's it's kind of a cross. We we do a, a, a roasted cornmeal or roasted mush, which is kind of a you know you would take a white corn and kind of roast it a little little bit on tan, and it's toasty. It's it's toffee like. It's it's really cool. It's um yum. And when you add that smoke flavor to it, it's it's when I when I put some of that in the pot my, my son goes, are you cooking bacon? <laughs> so it's, it's uh, you know, it's bacon without pork, if you will, uh, or a little bit of reminiscence there. And I've had a few customers tell me, you know, that's what my husband or my wife said is, you know, when they're in the other room, are you cooking bacon or you got ham going? So that's kind of what I was shooting for. But, but, but as you, as you realize that, uh, Hey, I've been eating this bland white corn that I've been thinking is, is what my people ate for a long time. And, I just added a whole nother level of flavor to something just kind of in an effortless fashion. So, but just thinking about things in a historic way, um, you know, how did things taste? How did things, because you know, I just know as a chef and as, as I've gathered it, uh, like I gathered at a food summit with a bunch of other, uh, Mohawks and Oneidas and and I think there may have been a Tuscarora around as, as well and some of the nations, but we were gathered to, to, together as, as I- Iroquoian folks and, and, uh, we all kind of went, you know, where's the herbs, where's the spices, where's the, you know, where's all the flavors that I know exist, but where are they? You know, because they, they do the same thing, you know, at, at, at their, their family gatherings and things like that or, or, or wherever they're happening to, happening to live. Asking the elders, you know, what's this? How is this done? And we're not finding flavors. We're not finding things. So <clears throat> that just makes me think even more about a lot of different things. Uh, grits and greens is a big thing here in the South or, or, or used to be a big thing indigenous folks have been eating grits and greens here uh, in the Americas for thousands of years. So, um, but it's something that I, I kind of promote a little bit now and then is, is foraging for greens. I call this time of year uh, yard yard foraging time uh, because I can walk out in my yard. We haven't sprayed here. We've been here almost 20 years. We haven't sprayed on the property since then. Um, so I can walk out in the yard and find all, all kinds of greens and whatnot growing in the lawn baby dandelion greens, I can find all all kinds of little greens to eat, uh, wild onions to throw into things. So all of these things are things that uh, back to what I was talking about earlier that are forage things that kind of went in the pot. So grits and greens are a very normal, normal way of doing things. Uh, Almost an intuitive way of doing things if you've got some some grits there that need something to be added to them because you need to stretch them. Well you just walked past the front ditch of the house and you got all kinds of greens there that are edible. So Chicory and things like that, and all, and it all goes, and it tastes great. Uh, yeah. And particularly this time of year, it's super healthy because uh, it's it, it's going to be some of the only greens that that that, that you're going to get around here. So uh, yeah. some of the stuff, even in the more northern climes, you can dig under snow in certain areas if you're if yeah. you're familiar with your area and find things that are staying green underneath the snow and eat those. So uh, there's a lot of things that have been lost as far as flavors go. As a forager, when I read foraging books. I come across plants that give us credit for eating a lot of plants that my indigenous books don't talk about. So uh, that to me means there's a huge disconnect there. So I'm not always working on, uh, you know, what, Hey, what, what's my cool dish going to be this, this, this week for, you know, for, for my online things. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm walking around about things as to how things would change for us to eat, not just, kind of produce a cool looking dish uh, for Facebook or Instagram or whatever site you like to post your pictures on um, so it's it, it's I've, I've gone from being a chef to kind of being a thinker I guess which is a little weird to me at, at, at times but it's kind of fun
0: Dave Smoke McCluskey I thank you very much for being a guest on the program today it has been a treat of an hour Jennifer
1: thanks for, thanks for having me
0: Chef Dave Smoke McCluskey is the founder of Corn Mafia. He is a grower and producer of such traditional corn products as Longhouse Hominy, Masa, and Grits. Based in South Carolina, Dave is an indigenous foods educator and a member of the Mohawk nation who invites us all to think about the history of the ingredients in our food, including and especially those originating from the Native American lands we in the U.S. live on. He has a strong belief in the power of flavorful, real food, which stems from his very basic and lifelong curiosity about his own people's culinary past. He tries to determine not only what has been lost, but how to re-envision and recreate a more accurate and probable, flavorful culinary narrative. Join us again next week when we take another historical journey, this time in time for Day of the Dead and All Hallows' Eve, exploring the horticultural lessons of Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston, Massachusetts, in conversation with recently retired president and CEO of Mount Auburn, horticulturalist Dave Barnett. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It's made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at CultivatingPlace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible by support from the American Horticultural Society. To read more and see many images from the life and history of Chef Dave Smoke McCluskey's Corn Mafia, head over to CultivatingPlace.com, where you will find this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria original theme music is by ma muse accompanied by joe craven and sam bevan cultivating places distributed nationally by prx public radio exchange until next week enjoy the cultivation of your place i'm jennifer jewell